Scripture today is from uh, Luke 20, verses 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and then went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Whose home do you live in? Whose time does your calendar keep track of? Whose money is it in your bank account? Whose strengths and abilities do you, do you make use of at work or at school or at home? And to whom belong the fruits of that labor? Whose church is this, and whose world? Now, don't point at me, like (laughs) Nolan. Uh, Whose vineyard is this, anyway? And now, who's in charge of it all? We're in Luke 20 today, looking at the parable of the wicked tenants. The whole chapter in Luke 20 is about authority, about Christ's authority, Christ came into Jerusalem, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Palm Sunday, and he rode in in a display of authority, and then he exercised that authority as he cleansed the temple of corrupt merchants, and as he began to teach the gospel of the kingdom. Last week, we saw how the leaders in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, who you can think of as chief teachers, how they challenged Christ's authority. His authority they saw as a threat to their own authority. Today's parable is, in fact, just a continuation of that same episode, that same scene, same confrontation. Jesus last week shut up the temple leaders, but now he turns to the people and he begins to teach them this parable, which is about those same leaders that he was talking to last week. He's already shut down their challenge to his authority, but he's not done. He goes on the offensive. He goes on to challenge their leadership or their abuse of it. 
they are the wicked tenants. Jesus uses this parable essentially to reframe the entire debate, even though he's already won it. It's not about the authority of Jesus as one mere man against the authority of another group of mere men. It's about God's authority and whether we recognize his authority, whether we recognize and honor his ownership of our lives, his ownership of everything. So as we look at the parable of the wicked tenants, what we will see is what it looks like when we don't honor God's ownership, when we don't honor God's authority. Kind of a serious sermon as we look at a portrait, essentially, of sin. Um, Just by way of an outline, I don't know if I have one. (laughs) We're just going to go through the parable bit by bit. If you're taking notes uh, to study later, I would just write down whatever is striking to you. Um, about uh, what sin does to us and makes us into. Diving in with verse 9 then. Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. So God is the man who planted the vineyard, right? Uh, The vineyard itself is the people of Israel. And I'm not just pulling that interpretation out of the air. That's the meaning that would have been obvious to any of Jesus' hearers that day. This is well-known Old Testament imagery of uh, God as the man who plants a vineyard and Israel as the vineyard itself. Jesus is especially drawing on what's called the Song of the Vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. I think it's just worth reading the whole song for context. If you have a Bible, it's Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. I think it's best just to read the the whole song. Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. By the way, the tower and the wine vat or wine press are mentioned in Matthew and Mark's version of this same parable, so it makes the reference to Isaiah even clearer. Anyway, watchtower, wine vat. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So you can see the similarities, common themes. God plants a vineyard, it's Israel. The vineyard fails to yield its fruit fails to yield good fruit to God, and as a result, God sends devastating judgment to the vineyard. 
Now, Jesus' parable, since he is focusing on the leadership, essentially, of Israel, the leadership within the vineyard, he adds this element of these tenants who are placed in charge of that vineyard to manage and care for the vineyard, which is the people on God's behalf. And we see how that turns out. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, as we see in verse 10. So the servants, it's not difficult to figure out, are the prophets. Uh, You could go from, I don't know, beginning with Moses all through the Old Testament prophets up to John the Baptist himself. When we think of a prophet, we tend to think of somebody who tells the future. Uh, However, though they sometimes and often did tell the future, that wasn't really the essence of their job. Their main job, the heart of their ministry as prophets, was to call the people to repentance, call them to return to God, turn aside from their idols, from their disobedience. So Isaiah says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So we can see where you know, maybe the analogy kind of breaks down. The prophets didn't come asking for literal grapes, although if those cotton candy grapes had existed back then, I'm sure they would have asked for some. But God doesn't need produce or any income from us. He doesn't need anything from us, really. The prophets were asking for the fruit of love of God and love of neighbor, asking for what is due, what we owe to God. Those are the two major themes of the prophets. Number one, stop worshiping idols and return to worship the true God. And number two, stop mistreating each other. Stop oppressing the poor and the powerless. We see, for example, Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before. My eyes cease to do evil, learn to do good. And the specific instruction that follows, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. On the other hand, Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So what they're looking for, the fruit that they're looking for, is obedience to the law of God, which is summed up by Jesus himself in two great commandments, right? Love God and love neighbor. That's the essence of what God was looking for from his people, as it's defined in the law of Moses, the covenant that he made with them. And God sent the prophets to call people back to this kind of faithfulness and fruitfulness. But, as we know, they did not listen. Kings and priests and false prophets as well, they didn't like what God had to say and they had a tendency to take it out on the messenger. They treated them badly and sent them back empty-handed. Isaiah himself, after hearing God's call and famously saying, Here am I, send me, is then told by God that the heart of his message is going to be that people aren't going to listen to his message, uh, that judgment is going to come. So we see that the servants in the parable, beginning with the first one, they're beaten and sent away empty-handed, much like the prophets they represent. The tenants, as caretakers of God's vineyard, they refuse to give God his due. The vineyard belongs to God, but they want its fruit all to themselves. 
These servants are a disruption. Things are going fine in the vineyard until they come start asking for the owner's rights over it. So they get angry. They lash out at these reminders that the vineyard does not belong to them. That they are accountable to a higher authority. They don't want to hear that. They take it out on the messenger. So we see sin turns us away from those who would lovingly call us back to God. We shouldn't be surprised if the message of the gospel is met with hostility. And their anger grows in intensity, I'll argue. We see that as we move from the first servant to the second one. The first one says they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The second one says they also beat, beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Now, it's, it's a slight difference here, slight addition maybe, you might think, because it says they beat him and dishonored him. Now, you'd think... If you're physically beaten, uh, that's pretty dishonoring. What else matters? But the description intensifies. It brings out the, the fact that it's shamefully treating him. And, of course, in a culture where honor and shame are much more part of their consciousness, uh, might raise uh, some, some flags for them as well. My point is that the description really does intensify. And I think we're meant to take it as seeing that the mistreatment is intensifying, the anger is intensifying. Even when you get to the third servant, the description is shorter. It just said this one also, they wounded and cast out. So we're shortening it maybe to move the, the story along here. But it's worth noting a couple things here. Uh, the word for wounded is kind of an unusual word in Scripture. It only occurs a couple times here and also in Acts chapter 19 where Luke describes uh, the result of this demon-possessed man who is attacking people. The noun form is used also by Luke uh, for the wounds of the man who was in the Good Samaritan parable, the man who was beaten and left in a ditch to die. Seems to be pretty serious wounds. The, it's, it's actually the Greek root of our English word trauma. It appears to have a similar kind of intensity for Luke as it does for us. And of course, they don't just send him away, they cast him out. So the tenants keep getting worse. Every attempt to reach out, every servant sent, every prophet sent to them, the leaders of Israel treat each one worse than the last. Their respect for God's authority dwindles as their grip on their own claim to authority tightens. Sin breeds greater sin. That's how it works. Beware of hardening your heart against the message of God. When God is reaching out through his word and saying, repent, turn from your sin, be reconciled to me, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know what happens when you harden your heart? Your heart becomes hard. It's not a one-off rejection. You, you change yourself for the worse every time you say no to God. We saw this back in the book of Exodus, where Pharaoh continued to harden his heart until it took the death of his own son to get him to let God's people go. And even then he changed his mind and tried to take them back again afterward with disastrous results. So how tragic it is that later on, as we're reading in the book of Luke, the leaders of God's people would harden their hearts to the point of rejecting God's own son. Well, as we move on in the parable, 
comes a judgment, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Notice how irrational their thinking has become. In what world is this plan going to work out well for them? It may have been the case that, you know, if an owner of some property dies and leaves absolutely no heir to be found, then perhaps the vineyard would just go to their tenants by default. Unless, of course, the reason that there is no heir to be found is that they murdered him. But that's how sin works. They've reached the point where rejecting God is all that matters to them. It's like some of the arguments that happen between people where it becomes so heated that people stop caring about what's true anymore or what's right or fair or even what's in their own best interest. All they know is that they're angry at the other side. As the saying goes, you're, you're willing to cut off your nose to spite your face. All that matters to the wicked tenants is rejecting the owner's claim on his vineyard and asserting their own. They're willing to escalate to insanely stupid and evil, really self-destructive levels to try to achieve that goal. They actually think it's in their best interest to commit a murder they can't possibly get away with. But that is what the leaders in Jerusalem are about to do. The phrase, my beloved son, that the owner uses for his son, It's an echo of both the baptism and the transfiguration of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, remember the voice from heaven said, You are my beloved son. And when he was transfigured on the mountain, God told Peter, James, and John that Jesus is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If you needed a clue as to who the son is in the parable, there's one for you. The Jewish leaders will be plotting to kill Jesus. They've already been seeking to destroy him, we saw last week. They don't like him. But their rejection of God has reached a critical mass. God has sent his son, and they're about to conspire to have him thrown out and killed, ultimately because they want the vineyard for themselves. They want to enjoy their power, their position, their privilege, without giving God his due. And it's at this point in the parable that Jesus asks a question, makes it audience participation here. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Doesn't seem like a tough question at all, does it? Those guys are toast. Verse 16 says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That seems obvious to everyone except the people that this parable is about because they know that it is about them. I didn't have... Grant, read verse 19, maybe I should have, it mentions this parable. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable about them. They were right. So Jesus is teaching the parable to the whole crowd gathered in the temple, but the leaders, they obviously didn't leave after their earlier confrontation with Jesus. They're still there listening, and I think they are the ones who respond there in verse 16. It says, when they heard this, they said, surely not. Uh, I would say that's the Jewish leaders, not the whole crowd. Uh, In the next verse, it says, Jesus looked directly at them and replied to the comment. It doesn't make much sense to me to say that Jesus looked directly at 
the entire crowd. It makes more sense to say that he looked at directly at a certain group within the crowd. You don't look directly at a whole crowd. When you say you're looking directly at someone, you're, you're, you're talking about, I'm singling somebody out within the crowd. If I were to say, for example, I looked at the whole congregation and said, don't be ca taken captive by vain philosophy, I would just be quoting scripture. If I look directly at Grant Sterling, professor of philosophy, philosophy or something I can't even pronounce, and said, do not be taken captive by vain philosophy, you might interpret my words slightly differently, right? So he's talking to the authorities, the, the rulers, singling them out within the crowd. And their response, that's, that's my point, that this is their response, the leaders, the people he is talking to, say, surely not. Can't possibly end that way. Their response is kind of laughable. Because there's just no way that this parable should end well for the murderous tenants. But the religious leaders are forced to say otherwise because they know it's about them and they just can't fathom that they could be subject to any judgment. They believe they can have their cake and eat it too, essentially. They end up saying what's in their hearts. They think they can continually reject God's servants, even reject God's own son, and still expect to receive God's favor, expect to receive God's mercy. I mentioned last week how Jesus had cited from Jeremiah's temple sermon as he was cleansing the temple. In that same sermon, the, the main point is that Jesus calls out the same exact attitude in the, the religious leaders of Jeremiah's day, that they believed that they could go on living these wicked, rebellious, sinful lives of idolatry and mistreating people, and face no judgment because they had the temple of the Lord. God won't judge us because we have a temple. Well, that's exactly how these religious leaders are thinking. They have this privileged position in the temple of the Lord. They are elites among God's chosen people, the chosen among the chosen, so to speak. To them, it's completely outside the responsibility, or the realm of possibility, rather, that they could ever suffer God's wrath for any reason. They are God's special people. Not even rampant disobedience, abuse of their authority, the rejection and murder of God's son could possibly earn them judgment. But we are not fundamentally different than they are, are we? Luke's point is not for us to condemn the Jewish leaders and pat ourselves on the back for being better than they are. He's not describing something unique to first century priests and scribes, but something common to all humanity in Adam, and that is sin. This is you, and this is me. Whatever God has given us, we might not be leaders in a temple, but whatever God has given us, great or small, we want it for ourselves. Whatever time we have, whatever possessions, whatever money, whatever authority, whatever gifts and abilities, we want the vineyard for ourselves. But whose vineyard is it anyway? You know, your right to your property is not absolute. We tend to think this way because on the level of civil government, uh, it honestly should be uh, respected. But the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not covet your neighbor's stuff. And when it says those, the reason, it's not that individual property rights are absolute. The theological reason for thou shalt not steal is that everything belongs to God. God has a right to say who gets what, but he also has a right to expect you to use it for his purposes. 
to use what he's given you for the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor. This is why in the church world we've used the term stewardship for this reason. God owns whatever we have, whatever, not just money, but time and talents and, and authority and anything. It all belongs to God. This goes back to the book of Genesis, of course. God created man and woman in his image to rule earth on his behalf. The world belongs to God, so do you, so do I. And so whatever corner of the world we find ourselves in, whatever influence or responsibilities we have, we are to steward those things for his purposes. From the possessions and positions that we might hold, down to our hearts and minds and bodies, it all belongs to God. You're in his vineyard, and you are his tenant. When I was in seminary, a friend of mine had a job doing valet parking at this expensive restaurant, and I helped out just one night when they were short-staffed. It was both exciting and, and nerve-wracking. Someone pulls in in this Jaguar, and you get to drive it. And as a seminary student, uh, you know that you're never going to own that kind of car. You're never going to have a chance to drive that again unless maybe your ministry fails and you're back to parking cars again. But it's fun to have a chance to sit behind the wheel at the same time you know it's not your car. So while it's fun to drive, you're also going to be pretty careful with it because you're aware that it doesn't belong to you. It's sort of a, a precious stewardship to treasure, but it's ultimately not yours. You can't just do whatever you want. If we learned anything... In Ferris Bueller's day off, you can't just go joyriding and then erase the mileage by driving home backwards, right? But that's what we try to do, essentially, with the precious stewardships God has entrusted to us. And we end up making a wreck of things. We launch the car out the window and into the woods. We forget that the vineyard belongs to God, that our lives are to bear fruit for his glory, and we end up wrecking things. And all manner of wreckage follows when we forget whose vineyard we are in. Whether we tend to hoard money or spend it like it's water, it's because we've forgotten that it belongs to God and we're to honor him with what we do with it. Same thing with time. If we waste our time in laziness or waste our lives in a workaholic frenzy, we've forgotten that each day is a gift from God to be used for him. If we are short-tempered with kids or overly permissive with them. It's because we're focusing on what's convenient and easy for us rather than bringing them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Or think about relationships. If we're controlling or complacent with, say, our church family, is it because we've put our felt needs ahead of putting Christ first? The list could go on. And what happens when someone brings loving correction? We can easily be like those wicked tenants as well. We mistreat the messenger. We attack the messenger. And like them as well, if we're not careful, our grip goes tighter each time we reject that correction. Our rejection is more aggressive. Now let me add a caveat here. I'm not trying to tell you that you must sweat bullets over every cent and every second you spend Every breath you take and every move you make, because he'll be watching you. And I'm certainly not saying that the, the point is to sort of um, have an extreme austerity mindset. You know, there is a time to enjoy 
what God has given you. That's using what he's given you for his glory. It's a gift. There's a time to take a break, have a nice meal, buy the good ice cream, and give thanks to God. And there's certainly, though, a time to sacrifice, to give up time, to give up resources, to inconvenience yourself for the sake of the kingdom. The point is not to minimize one and maximize the other. There is no set formula that I can deliver to you from the pulpit that's one-size-fits-all for everybody. It would be easier if there was. You know, 10% belongs to God, 90% is all for me. That's simple. People, fallen human beings can follow that sort of thing. But acknowledging that 100% belongs to God and I need to honor him with all of it, that's another matter entirely. To acknowledge that God is the rightful owner and therefore therefore the rightful Lord over all you have and all that you are. To live and work and serve, ever aware that this is God's vineyard that you're tending and not your own, that's not just difficult for us, that is impossible for us. We are fallen creatures. and We can force ourselves maybe to follow a formula out of self-righteousness, but we cannot change our hearts. Perhaps you've heard this quote from the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And our hearts cry in return, no, mine. It's one of the first words most of us learn, right? But look at the challenge Jesus gives the religious leaders because Though it's a note of judgment for them, hidden within it is a word of hope. In verse 17, he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him again. Word of judgment for those who reject Christ. Christ is the stone the builders rejected. The leaders rejected him. They tripped and fell on the stone. If they don't repent, they end up broken to pieces. But there is a word of hope as well. Christ has become the cornerstone. This is a quote from Psalm 118, the same psalm that people shouted out as Christ rode into Jerusalem. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the same psalm, a same verse of the same psalm that the Apostle Peter will quote again to the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4. Once Jesus is raised from the dead, Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there's the word of grace. Christ has died, but Christ is risen. And in his name, there is salvation. Jesus' friends preached this gospel even to the same religious leaders who had put Christ to death. Christ is the cornerstone, the beginning of the foundation of something new. We have rejected God's claim on our lives and sought to put ourselves in charge. And because of this, God's wrath is coming. But there is salvation in the name of of Christ Jesus, because Jesus did what we have failed to do and keep failing to do. He gave everything 
for the glory of God. Down to his life, his broken body and shed blood, he gave up for the glory of his Father to do his will and for the good of his people to redeem us from our sin. Ultimate expression of what the wicked tenants should have been. Knowing he would be rejected, knowing he would be thrown out and put to death, he still came. Though all things were made through him, for him, and belong to him, though he is the rightful Lord of all, he is the owner, he is the heir, still he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. While we were crying mine over all the stuff of our little lives, God freely gave us an even greater gift than the stars in the sky. He gave us his son. Rich Mullins, if you don't know who he is, you need to so we can be friends, but Rich Mullins hit the nail on the head when he said, surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. That's a picture of what sin is like in our hearts still. Just like with the wicked tenants, sin distorts your heart in self-destructive ways. Does anyone really enjoy the constant grind for more, the struggle to hold on to possessions and position? Is there really fulfillment in any of that, any of that for anyone? That road leads to destruction, doesn't it? It starts destroying you even before the day of judgment. Why keep tightening your grip on things that won't last when life abundant and eternal is free for all who receive Christ? And all that's required is to take what God has given. All things are ready. Christ has provided for everything. For believers, we remember this each week, and we need to be reminded of this each week as we receive the Lord's Supper. It's laid out as a feast. We simply come and take what is freely given. You don't have to bring anything. It's not potluck. It's catered. Some more verses from Isaiah that I think are encouraging to us. When he asks a question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, what you actually want, actually need, what you were made for, what you need to get off the never-ending treadmill is freely given. Perfect love and perfect acceptance, perfect grace from a heavenly Father who knows you inside and out and loves you as you are, it is free. It can't be earned. You can't prove yourself worthy of it because he knows that you're not. But receive Christ and he looks on you as he looks on his own perfect, eternal, beloved Son. Receive Christ by faith. And the Father freely gives all things with him. Come to the table. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have made the heavens and the earth, 
all things visible and invisible, the stars and the sky, the sun and the moon, the ground that we stand on, the breath in our lungs, the bodies that we present before you in worship, our hearts and our minds, all of these things belong to you. All of these things are for you, for your glory, for your purposes. We do confess that our hearts, even now, still want to claim all of these things for ourselves. We are so often like the wicked tenants, crying out mine, rejecting correction, even loving correction. Apart from your grace, we would be in that situation still. We thank you that you have given us your son. If there was anything over which you had a right to claim mine and withhold from us, it was your son. And yet you did not withhold him, but freely gave him for us all, even as we were crying out mine. And as he came, he laid down his life for us. He was and is God. And yet he did not count even that equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, did what we were supposed to do from the beginning, humbly, obediently serving God, laying down his life, though it cost him greatly in pain and agony and death. He gave everything for your glory and for our good, for our redemption. What can we possibly say to these things? How great is your love and mercy and grace beyond what we could ever have imagined or dared to ask for, and yet it is freely given. Lord, if there are any here who have not received Christ, I pray that through your grace, your spirit, you would open their hearts to let go of that constant drive to claim that all these things are mine, but may they receive Christ, the free grace that you have given. For those of us who have received Christ, sin still remains within us, and we still, we still find ourselves crying out that this is mine. We still find ourselves rejecting correction. We still find ourselves challenging your rightful ownership and authority. We pray that you would forgive. We pray that you would set us free from this habit, this sin that still clings to us. Help us daily to remember that we have the privilege of working in your vineyard, 
that we have the privilege and the honor of tending to things that belong to Almighty God. Remind us of this and set us free that we might simply receive the grace that you have given to us and then in full assurance that we are redeemed and loved by God that we might serve you and one another for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.